So this, this morning is the third message in the series where we're talking about our neighbors. And I think that of the messages that I will preach on this parable of the Good Samaritan and the story where Jesus says to love our neighbor and to love in the way that the Samaritan loved the man in the ditch and that our neighbor is anyone who is in need, I think that this may be the most difficult of all the lessons to embrace and to teach. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' answer to the man who says, who is my neighbor? And when Jesus used the Samaritan as an example of a good neighbor, that was really difficult for his audience to hear because they hated Samaritans. And when we hear this story of the Good Samaritan, the parable, we mostly think of helping other people and, and any, anyone that's in need is my neighbor. Anyone that's hurting is my neighbor. We're supposed to help people. And that's, that's a basic teaching of the parable. But really, the, this parable is really about how we treat our enemies. How we love the people that have hurt us, how we love the people that have wounded us. And in a world where people are really bitterly divided about all kinds of things, politics, race, all kinds of issues in our world where people are just really divided and filled with so much hate for one another, this teaching is really, really difficult. And the passage I've chosen to share with you today really is the fundamental heart of who Jesus is and what Jesus actually taught about how we are to love, the kind of love we're supposed to have for people. And if you want to understand fundamentally what shaped the interaction between Jesus and the religious man who wanted to know who his neighbor was, this teaching foreshadows it. This teaching underscores who Jesus really is at his core. I will tell you that this passage is very familiar to us, but it's also very, very difficult to do. Uh, I struggle with forgiveness. I wrestle with giving grace to people I disagree with. Uh, I find it hard sometimes to let go of the wounds when others have hurt me. And so when we read this passage and we think about, think about it personally, about people in our life who have hurt us and wounded us and that he's calling us to love them and not to expect them to love us in return, to give them and not to expect them to give back to us, I think it's just an almost impossible teaching for us to live. It, Jesus here is setting a really high standard for us. And probably the best way that we can authenticate, illustrate, and demonstrate the real love of Jesus is to love in a way where people look at us and say, the only way... He's able to love that way is it's obvious because, man, God, God must have done something in him. Because of the way he was hurt or the way he was wounded, to see him love that way, God must have done something. So I want you to repeat after me these four, there are four commands we get in the scripture and then I want, so you can hear them as I read it. The first is, just repeat after me, love, do good. Bless, Bless. Pray. pray, awesome.
Good job. So he says, you know, we're supposed to do good to those who are enemies. We're supposed to not just like our enemies. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to pray for people who persecute us. And we even are supposed to bless those who curse us. What I'm about to read is found in two places in the New Testament. Uh, it's found in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, but it's also found here in another version of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's teaching. Here's what Jesus said. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. And he's not necessarily just talking here about material things. When they take away your pride, when they take away your dignity, when they take away your love, when they take away your joy. Do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High. Underline that. When we're able to live this way and love this way, we are most identified as children of the Most High God. And then he adds these words. Because God is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Let me say that one more time. This is the character of God. God is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate. Compassionate to people who are unthankful, who are wicked, who take from you, who give you nothing in return. Because your father is compassionate. Okay, let's just, let's just get right down to the heart of this teaching. So let me give you a couple practical examples that perhaps you can relate to. The teaching is from Jesus is that when someone has done you harm and you have the opportunity to get even with your enemy, what do you do? When someone has hurt you, how do you respond? So let's just begin by talking about your jobs, where you work. Anybody here ever have a job? Raise your hand. Okay. 
Okay. Anybody here ever have to work with someone difficult to work with? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you were ever the difficult person that, you, that other people had to work with. Okay. Small company, large company, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you do or what kind of job you have. People are people. And if you work for a company long enough, you're eventually going to work with someone that you find it difficult to work with. And perhaps you may find yourself in a circumstance where a coworker perhaps lied about you or perhaps uh, uh, a coworker uh, betrayed you or perhaps a coworker threw you under the bus or a coworker stole your idea. It's going to happen. It's the real world. The real world's not nice. People are not nice. So imagine this, in that moment, you had no opportunity in that circumstance to get even with the person that hurt you or to make the wrong right. But the reality is that if, if you wait around long enough, at some point, the opportunity may be presented to you to defeat your enemy, to hurt the person that hurt you. That could come in a thousand different ways. Just at the right time, at the right moment, you find yourself in a situation where the person that you're working with is vulnerable or once worked with, and you have the opportunity to step on their throat and hurt them. Let's just say you're out with a group of friends over dinner, and you no longer work for the company anymore, but the individual that hurt you still does, and you find out that that person is up for a promotion. The person's name comes up at dinner. And you're sitting there at dinner, and you're having dinner with people who have the authority to promote this individual within the company. This is a very real situation. You're carrying around all that hurt inside. What do you do? You know things about that person and that person's character integrity that you can share. Do you in that moment share the information that you have in order to defeat your enemy. Do you do good or do you do harm? Let me give you another example. I've heard people say this all the time. Well, let me ask first. How many of you have children? Raise your hand. Okay. You ever hear a parent say, you know what? You can hurt me, but if you hurt my kid, not going to be good. Right? Okay? So, so your son or daughter, let's just say your son comes home from elementary school crying because of a circumstance that took place on the playground. And this is repeated day after day after day. And you watch your son go from being this positive, outgoing kid to this kid that that it's just almost trauma to get them up and to take them to school every day because they're just scared, fearful, bullied, picked on. And you know what happens when you're that age and you get bullied like that, called names, made fun of. It creates a scar that lasts and it impacts a person's self-esteem when suddenly they've gone from the safe confines of their home into the real world where they get hurt. 
Now, you're not, you know, you say something to the teachers, the teachers can only do so much, but it continues and it continues and continues. And then one day, you're coaching a little league baseball. You're the head coach. You get the uh, roster that's handed to you, and you open it up. That kid that hurt my son's on my roster. Uh, you want to think that you're a big person. But what do you do? How do you coach the kid? Do you let it impact the way you coach the kid? Or even though the kid is really talented, could be a second baseman, really good at baseball, you sit him on the bench, or maybe you just treat him with a little cool, professional distance. I could cite some positive examples in my own life. Um, There are moments when I have you know, lived at a higher level, and I've had the opportunity to hurt people that have hurt me, and I've not. There have been moments in my life, I've had some great moments when I've been able to forgive people who, who have hurt me. I will tell you, it is really difficult to stand up every week and preach the gospel, stand behind the communion table when you're carrying a lot of grudges, a lot of hurt inside, because it, you know, every week I'm reading the Word and it says forgive, forgive, forgive. But I will tell you, I also have a lot of moments in my life when I've really failed at this. And there was a person many years ago who um, really hurt me. I trusted this person, and in a critical moment, this person betrayed me, and it cost me. It really hurt me professionally in some other ways and caused me a lot of pain. Even talking about it this morning and bringing up and thinking of that person's name in this moment still causes me some hurt in my heart. I'm still struggling with it, and I let that person live inside my head for a long time. For a long time, for a long, long time, when I was around other people, uh, I would never say anything about this person. I just swallowed it. I just went on doing the right thing, but never really ever let go of it, never really ever released it, never ever leaned into this teaching. So a moment came up where I was in a circumstance and where this person's true character was revealed in another situation. So I find myself in a conversation with a bunch of people, and they're talking about this person. And they're really speaking harshly about this person's character and integrity. And I'm in that moment, and I had a decision. What do I do? And I didn't choose the right thing. I'm aligned that person's character. And it was a terrible mistake. I'm going to tell you, honestly, it felt pretty good. You know? But it was the wrong thing to do. Because the desire to get even at that moment, I let it out, became insatiable for me. I suddenly found myself in circumstances where I was around people and the topic wasn't even coming up. And I felt this insatiable need to belittle the person's character by whispering negative things about this person in this person's ear. It was like the emotional dam broke. That's real. What do we do with the people? Maybe you say, well, I don't have have any enemies. Everybody has an enemy. We can talk about the enemies being liberals or conservatives or ISIS or Al-Qaeda or all those things. Those are easy enemies to forgive. I'm talking about the person that looked you in the eye and took an emotional knife and stuck it in your heart and twisted it and cut your heart out and left you bleeding and wounded and hurting. That's not easy. 
But that's what this parable of the Good Samaritan is about. The parable of the Good Samaritan is about our neighbor. Our neighbor is the person that hurt us. And then if we're going to love the way that God loves, we're going to love our enemy by making our enemy our neighbor. Do you know, do you know, do you know the history behind the Samaritan thing? We think of the Samaritan as being a good person. But do you realize that when Jesus told this story, that people would have just went, are you kidding me? The Samaritan, the hero of the story? The hatred between Samaritans and Jews was extreme, just like between Palestinians and Jews today. Extreme. Because when Solomon was king of Israel, when he passed away, The kingdom of Israel split in half between a northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and a southern kingdom of Judah. They set up rival worship sites and claimed to have the direct and authority of right to be the people of God. In 722 B.C., because of the northern kings, the northern kings were wicked, bad, horrible people. Their moral fiber and character weakened the nation. God turned his blessing back from the people, and the Assyrian army came in and destroyed them and chose to conquer them by moving their people into the country and intermarrying with the Israeli people. So Jews and pagans married together and formed, became Samaritans. They were considered half-breeds. That's, sort of, that's what the Jews from the southern kingdom called them. That started it all. This went on for a few hundred years. Hatred and animosity. But it gets worse. Because in 587 B.C., the Babylonian army came in and destroyed the southern kingdom. But instead of moving people down to intermarry with them, they chose to conquer them by taking them to Babylon, where instead of them intermarrying, they became more solidified as a people. That's where most of the Old Testament was written and formed and come together. Their identity grew and strengthened. Seventy years later, they moved back. And guess who was the strongest opposition to their resettling their homeland? That's the same thing today. The Samaritans, we don't want them back. So hear the story. You're a Jewish man. You've been beaten and robbed. You're lying in a ditch, half dead. And you watch two Jewish leaders from your own religion walk straight by and not even look at you. And then here comes your enemy. You see him coming. And then you see him turn his head toward you. He's leaving the road. And he's walking down the ditch toward you. And what are you thinking? Lights out for me. Well, let's just say you're the Samaritan. You see the guy in the road. 
You look around, no one's around. What are you going to do? You have an opportunity to hurt you, your mortal enemy. But what does he do? He walks down in the ditch and models the love of God we saw in Jesus. Who did not condemn those who condemned him. See how those two things are connected? What a word for our world today. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached on this passage, the Good Samaritan passage, multiple times. And the teaching of love your enemies multiple times. He preached those stories multiple times because it was at the core of his nonviolence, non-resistance movement during the Civil Rights Movement. And uh, he considered them to be core essential to what it means to follow Jesus. And he said two or three things about it. One thing he said was, he said that when the, the, the teaching of Jesus teaches us that when you have an opportunity to defeat your enemy, he said don't. There's a critical moment we all face, and when that moment arrives, you don't. You do good. You bless. You pray. You do good. I'm reminded of a story from American history. Uh, raise your hand if you know who Edwin Stanton is. You do now, because you were to other service. <laughs> During the Civil War, Edwin Stanton was the Secretary of War who waged the war against the South during the Civil War. But what a lot of people don't know is that Edwin Stanton was Abraham Lincoln's mortal enemy. From the very beginning of Abraham Lincoln's political career, he made fun of, he mocked, he humiliated Abraham Lincoln. Said, he was, said Lincoln was of low intelligence and all these kinds of things. You think there were harsh words spoken between the last two presidential candidates for each other. You should see some of the things that were said about Lincoln by his opponents. But Lincoln had a philosophy. And he was the right person to be president of the United States during a civil war when people had to be brought together. Because his theory was, if you want the way to defeat your enemy, is to make your enemy your friend. And he looked around for the most talented person that he could find to be Secretary of War, and he ended up choosing Edwin Stanton. When Lincoln was shot at the Ford Theater, the very, very next day when he died, in the room was a handful of people and the family minister. When he took his last breath, the minister prayed a short prayer, and then there was silence. The silence was broken by these words. Now to him, he belongs to the ages. Those words were spoken by the enemy who had become his friend. Edwin Stanton. Edwin Stanton, I learned, then spent the next 10 days in a row going to be with Robert Lincoln, Abraham's son, and sitting with him, weeping with him, not even speaking. The reason, the reason our country was able to come back together and to be a union again is because of the spirit of the leader who lived this idea of love your 
neighbor, and love your enemies. And that's why today, if you go to Washington, D.C., you will find that we have memorialized him as one of our greatest leaders because he lifted up our highest ideals that we get from Jesus. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Powerful word for our world today. So radically divided and filled with hate. King said that what we have to do, what we must do, is we must realize that hate destroys the hater. And at some point, we have to choose to do something different. This is the teaching of Jesus, that hate only gets hate. Anger only gets anger. Violence only gets more violence. That's why King chose nonviolence. You don't make enemies friends by hurting your enemy. At some point, we choose the path of Jesus. And so at the end of Jesus' life, what's hap- what happens? He is standing up in front of the people. Pontius Pilate puts him up in front of the crowds and puts up Barabbas. Both were called Messiahs. Barabbas chose the way of war and violence and hate. And Jesus chose the path of nonviolence and love and kindness to our enemies. Who do you want us to set free? And the world chose Barabbas. And as long as the world continues to choose Barabbas, we'll keep walking down this world, and this world will continue to be filled with blood, blood spilled and hatred. That's why we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because he offers a different way. We follow Jesus because we know that the way of Barabbas is the death for us also. So let me ask you, how do we do this? I don't know if I can do it. So I went searching through Romans where Paul is going, you know, I, don't, I want to do the right thing, but I can't do the right thing. And I found this one little weird verse that just kind of helps me. Look at what it says. It says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of the one who is forgiveness, the Spirit of the one who is mercy, the Spirit of the one that is compassion, who raised Jesus from the dead, means when you've accepted Jesus, that Spirit lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies. I mean, who I am as a person, the weakness, my sin, my failure, all that stuff, all the things that destroy me and kill me, that what I'm doing is, is that it's not, following Jesus is not just a matter of me wanting to do better. It's having the ability to do better because he lives in me. It's because the Holy Spirit takes up residence in me. And when I give my life to him, I'm allowing him to come into my life to begin to really change me on the inside. So it's not me just trying to do good. It's I'm able to do good because he does good. When it comes to loving my enemy, I can't, but he can. Listen to this. This is the motivation. When it says here, do good to those who hate you, that's what God has done for us. When we hated God, when we cursed God, When we walked away from God, he loved us. 
It says here, do good to those and give to those who give nothing back. We give nothing back and God gives to us again and again and again. We want to take everything from God. We want to take everything that belongs to God, but we don't give it back in return. But he just keeps giving it to us and giving it to us and giving it to us. And even though we're unthankful, and even though we continue to live in ways that betray him, deny him, he just continues to give to us and give to us and give to us and give to us and give to us. If you're having trouble with the idea of loving someone who has hurt you, then what I would suggest you do is look, look up from the ditch that you're lying in and look at the nail-scarred hand that's reaching out to lift you up to new life.